Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Maroon Weekly. I'm Pravan. I'm Jake. I'm William. I'm Celeste. And I'm Carter, back from New York. Well, 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 it's very, very good to see you here again, Carter. Glad to be back. Back in the booth. Uh, we got a lot of stories for you today we haven't recorded in a while, um, but we f- will first, uh, you know, how's everybody doing? How's the cold treating you? Yeah, so first and foremost, I am so sorry that we didn't release an episode last week. Uh, We weren't able to record, we were going to, but while I was on my way to the studio, uh, the ICE and I had a very intimate meeting with each other, um, and I got to feel what concrete feels like after a long time. Uh, It wasn't the most fun, and I did have to cancel recording that day as I was on the ground and not going to continue on my way to Logan. Uh, but yeah, so sorry about that. Luckily, we are inching closer and closer and closer every day to spring break, which I am so excited about because I will be somewhere warm. Um, I'm still trying to figure out where, but it will be warm. Not I will here. be warm. Not here. The negative temps have turned me off from Chicago for the rest of the winter. I'm glad to hear you're feeling better and you've got good times ahead as far as temperature goes. That's great. Well, we'll start our news covering. So uh, we'll start with Celeste over here. He's got a story about the nurses strike. In a rally organized by their parent union, National Nurses United, more than 200 UChicago medicine nurses rallied outside UCM facilities last Monday morning amid a month-long contract negotiation. The nurses union says that UCM refuses to listen to both their concerns, including staffing issues like high patient-to-nurse ratios and low retention of recent hires, and their demands, such as the proposed inclusion of a trigger clause that would allow the union to bargain for certain guarantees in case of events such as a pandemic. Speaking to the Maroon, one recently hired surgical nurse said she took issue with regularly being switched from one unit to another mid-shift, requiring difficult adjustments adjustments. An ICU nurse explained that she often handled up to three patients in life-threatening conditions at once and that UCM denied nurses the opportunity to take overtime shifts as a cost-cutting measure. There are two main UChicago hospitals in Hyde Park, Mitchell Hospital and Center for Care and Discovery. A nurse from Mitchell Hospital says that Medicare and Medicaid patients are disproportionately sent to Mitchell, explaining that, quote, management would rather pull nurses to staff the hospital with fewer Medicare and Medicaid patients. Scott Mechanic, a CD and Comer Children's Hospital emergency room nurse participating in contract negotiations on behalf of NNU, explained that the rally was meant to pressure UCM to focus on implementing measures to improve staff retention during negotiations. Mechanic said that turnover has been extreme, with half of CCD's nurses being new since the last contract was signed four years ago. He cited burnout as a factor preventing nurses from remaining in their jobs for more than a few years, and pointed to lower patient-to-staff ratios as a potential remedy. It's a larger issue, according to the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. Insufficient staffing is impacting job satisfaction and driving many nurses to leave the profession. And this national shortage is set to intensify as the U.S. population ages. In order to prevent a strike, the nurses said that they would need to see a lot of movement from the hospital. According to a UChicago Medicine statement, NNU and UCM are meeting five times a month, including two sessions scheduled for later this week. 
In a statement to the Maroon, UCM said it was, quote, continuing to work collaboratively with National Nurses United to reach a comprehensive contract agreement that meets the needs of our nurses, our growing healthcare organization, and the community of patients who rely on us for care. And this was first reported on in the Maroon by Nick Rommel. I didn't really know much about the, the nationwide shortage, much less the, um, much less the tensions here, but I think that's obviously a very serious problem. Like, uh, and I wonder what are the root causes of it, because I don't really know much about the nursing profession, but I feel like if anything, I would have expected it to have increased over time rather than decreased. But I think people are very tired after the um, COVID that, pandemic. Yeah. Kind of. The lack of care for first responders, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also I think the lionization of doctors as a profession would make it a lot more attractive for individuals to think of going into higher um, study, going into becoming doctors instead of becoming nurses. The treatment of nurses is not always the best by doctors. There may be a shift of individuals who would like to pursue becoming a doctor rather than being a nurse. Uh, I will take the next uh, next story on the University of Chicago Folk Fest. So on February 9th and 10th, folk musicians and dancers representing traditions from all around the world will gather here on campus for the 64th annual UChicago Folk Festival. This year, some of the acts that will be featured in concert include a well-known fiddler in the Sligo style, Midwestern twin singers, a bluegrass indigenous fusion fiddler, and Jared Paxton, the so-called Dean of Black Folk Music. Workshops that will take place throughout the weekend feature folk dances from Scotland, the Balkans, Scandinavia, and more, and there will also be crafting classes for activities like quilting and crocheting. When organizing the event, the Folklore Society's primary objective is searching for authenticity in the groups they invite, and questions of what is traditional and how folk music is defined always come up. It's part of the reason they rejected Bob Dylan in the 60s for not being folk enough. (laughs) Uh, This article was written by Noah Glasgow and is available on the Maroon website. I can't believe they rejected Bob Dylan for not being folk enough. Yeah. That sounds like such a Chicago thing to do. <laughs> By what criteria are you folksy, folk enough? I, I don't know exactly when he wanted to be part of this, but there's all, there was a, there was a very famous um, switch in his style where he started using electric instruments oh, and around like yeah, that's true. 1965 or so. And that was like, you know, a lot of folk musicians and members of the folk community were like, mad at him for that because it felt like he was turning his back on them and so i think that that sort of yeah, was I part of the maybe this rejection is what prompted that change he felt like he'd been <laughs> an outcast be within the folk community just because of what you know you chicago did villain origin story yeah villain yeah. origin story for bob dylan villain origin story being you chicago students <laughs> <laughs> yeah very very you chicago have you ever been i went to the folk fest last year i went to well, the, one of the the concert. I didn't go to any of the workshops, but um, they I've heard very good things about them. It's always a very jovial and happy environment. They have a they have a party on the last day that goes well into the morning, where people do like two step dances and stuff, and it's uh, it's really it's really great. Um, one of my friends is actually in charge of coordinating all the workshops, and so she's told me so much about you know all the various personalities and the various histories of the folklore society and how they sort of extend beyond campus and they have a very strong network of alums both who have coordinated the folk fest in years past and who have been to the folk fest before and just those connections that have been made is is very those connections are very strong um they are looking for volunteers so 
Um, it says this in the article, but if you would like to volunteer, you can email uofcfolk at gmail.com, I believe. And uh, they're always uh, they're always looking for volunteers. They they give you free tickets to the concert. They're otherwise $5 for students. All right, I will take the next story on Chicago's Restaurant Week. Uh, this is a thing that happens where restaurants feature discounted prices for prefix meals, and it just started on Friday. Six restaurants in the Hyde Park area are featured this year. Four of them are on or around 53rd Street. There's 14 Parish Restaurant and Room Bar, which serves a wide array of Caribbean food. Messler, which is the new American restaurant inside the Sophie Hotel. There's the Southern Restaurant Virtue, and there's the New Orleans-style eatery Daisy's Pulloy and Tavern. The other two, Don on 56th Street and Bar David on 60th Street, serve American slash Southern and Mediterranean food, respectively. Uh, if you want to hear any of what the specific menus will entail for this restaurant week, which goes for 16 more days, I don't remember what day that ends on, um, the article by Zoe Farrow is available in the Hyde Park Herald and online. I went to Daisy's Pobo and Tavern with my roommates um, a couple weeks back. I tried alligator for the first time. Never had alligator before. It's a sort of like fishy chicken. I don't know if anyone else here has had alligator, but it was a good restaurant. I hope people enjoy restaurant week in Hyde Park and beyond. Yeah, I've had food from Virtue. Um, it was it's very good. It's barbecue, right? Um, or at least southern yeah. inspired yeah. soul food. Um, and I think I what I had was uh, it was like a jackfruit that was meant to be similar to, to pulled pork. I remember it being good. Mm. Yeah, I believe they're famous for that. Um, they, yeah, for for virtue at least, um, the dinner here will be either a kale salad or green tomatoes to start, shrimp and crawfish with grits, or jambalaya with Carolina gold rice, and the dessert is either red velvet cake or banana pudding, and those all sound delicious. Yeah, check out Restaurant Week for sure. I'm going to be going somewhere for Restaurant Week tonight. Um, since I'm only here for a couple of days and absolutely would love to look at some, some good food. I'll, I'll take a look at them. Um, on to a different topic. Uh, Jake will take the next story, which is on the university's finances. The yeah. ANDA report finally came out, and Jake has a lot to say. Yeah, in what has perhaps become our most frequently recurring segment, I once again have news on the university's financial situation. Professor Clifford Ando's essay, which we first talk about, talked about back in November, has finally been published. But not in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which Ando said he would publish in, but instead with our own Chicago Maroon. The article has some changes from the original draft, which we covered here, and I strongly recommend that you read it yourself if you've been following this story. One major conclusion that I will bring up here is that Ando concludes that the tuition of a full 85% of our undergraduate student body must be used solely to service the university's debt. So that's not to pay off the debt, but merely to keep it from growing, you know, keep the debt that we'd already accumulated from getting bigger. And because money from our endowment is largely earmarked for one specific cause or another, the general purpose funds that the university gets from student tuition are, you know, in large part used just to service this debt. This story is finally starting to make some waves outside of our Hyde Park bubble. Crane's Chicago Business has written two pieces on our debt in just the last two weeks, one titled Debt and Deficits Set Off Alarm Bells at University of Chicago, and one titled UChicago Grad Union Adds Pressure to University's Poor Financial Position. I can't give you summaries of either of these articles because Cranes has a paywall. And although the reg does give you access to archives of Cranes and many other publications, these articles are not yet available there. The Chronicle of Higher Education also published on this with the headline, The U of Chicago is Feeling a Financial Squeeze. Their piece, written by Scott Carlson, pushes back on some of Ando's concerns. 
Over email, university spokesman Gerald McSwiggan explained the debt by writing that the university had, quote, purposefully leveraged a favorable financial environment to make significant investments in academia. But nowhere in that article does UChicago spokesperson address where we go next. Now that the financial environment is less favorable, our debt will need to be refinanced, and we are still running multi-hundred million dollar deficits annually. In the op-ed from Dean Boyer on the university's debt, which I mentioned last week, he claimed that these investments let us keep up with, quote, peer institutions like Harvard and Yale. But Ando raises the question of what our university wants to be. Does it want to maximize enrollment and maintain its place on the U.S. News & World Report rankings next to those, quote, peer institutions? Or does it want to be the best sort of university it can be for its students and for the world? In effect, Ando asks, are we really pursuing the ideal of a university, or are we engaged in status games and revenue management? I understand that achieving status, making Harvard into a peer institution, improves our ability to attract talent and become an ideal university. But if it comes at the cost of funding to our humanities division and other sections of the university that are key to our academic mission, which appears to be already happening, if Ando is to be believed, then I don't think that trade-off makes sense. I do really wonder where UChicago can go from here. Well, I think gaming the rankings uh, and moving up and renovating facilities and improving student experience is all in a bid to capture better and smarter talent. Definitely. If, if other universities have more funding and better programs and just, you know, better everything than we do, then why should talent come here? What's the point? Well, it does depend if what you're looking for is to achieve the widest pool of talent or if you're looking to achieve the deepest pool in one particular area, if they want to specialize. If they want to maximize total enrollment, then they would pursue a wider economic deficit in order to maximize those resources. But again, I think he's raising the point that the University of Chicago can be the best it can for its students or it can try to compete with those broader appealed high status schools. It can't really do both strongly, something which it reckoned with back in the, its early days with sports when it decided not to have sports so it could specialize. We're now facing another issue where they're not specializing in that sort of unique UChicago experience that it was so well known for, their rigorous academic inquiry, and they're, they're trying to create a broader appeal. And that is a change. Yeah, there's just trade-offs here. Um, they can pursue that high status, but once again, if it comes at the cost of funding to these academic divisions, if it means that we can't afford to hire the same amount of tenure-track faculty and adjuncts teach more courses, um, I think the university should be honest about the decisions it's making in that regard and the consequences that it will have. Can a university that prides itself on academic rigor still exist going forward? Can a stable university that truly prides itself on academic rigor and kind of teeters the line with grade deflation continue to exist? So is your question whether academic rigor is profitable? More or less. I mean, I think universities should set up systems such that the, um, the only motive is not profit, right? Yeah. Such that they can operate as they want to, like in an ideal world. Um, and. I mean, grade deflation probably isn't great for attracting students. I don't think it's like such a strong cost that it makes operating as a university untenable. I don't think being rigorous makes it so no one wants to come here. But I wonder how many kids are pushed away every year. 
because of it. Does that affect profitability? It could. I think a lot of the university's reliance is on donations. If you're there paying 80000 a year and then you're coming where a professor doesn't believe in A's. There will always be enough students who want to come to UChicago. I guess there would be a question of whether we'd get the top students and maybe, you know, you'd be less profitable if your alums aren't making as much money and such. Um, but I don't know. I hope the university tries to maintain its intellectual spirit and its unique milieu. Yeah, the aim of the university is not to promote or rather produce students with high paying careers. It's to yeah. produce educated individuals. I think that was one of its primary goals in, in founding and has historically been as they've tried to avoid having what they would consider training in undergraduate degrees. It's why it took so long for them to create business economics and they still don't have degrees in finance or business exclusively. They're trying to promote theory, academic rigor rather than training for a career. And although that is a product often, one which they often will advertise, it's not the primary goal. Yeah. yeah I think a lot of this really gets to the central debate of UChicago these days, you know, the business econ major, like adding stuff like that. Who do we want to be? Who is Dean Nondorf choosing to admit every year? What does that pool look like? Is it still the same where fun go comes to die energy? Do we want that? What do we want? Yeah. Um, these are not questions we can all answer so easily. I believe I've asked this to you in previous episodes, but where does he get his information? So, as he mentions um, in the article that he wrote, which can be found in the Maroon, um, I think the term he uses is that UChicago has a pathology of secrecy. Our university does not like to share information about what it owns, how much debt it has, but there are like tax documents that they have to file um, where you can see all these things um, and where you can see what other universities are also doing. So you can check you know, our financial statements and see how much debt we claim as compared to Harvard, Yale, any number of other schools. Um, and we can, you can see that our debt-to-asset ratio, as he mentioned, I think, in the, the discussion I went to, was 68%. And no IV had a debt-to-asset ratio higher than 35% per you know, this, these tax numbers, which we have to hope are you know, comparable because it's all through the same um, like filing that they have to make. I couldn't get into the specifics of the tax documents, but um, it was all public records that he was looking at. Mm. And uh, I guess nobody else has looked at this before. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of legwork um, that you have to do. And he was willing to put in that time over the summer, mm -hmm. which props to him. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, right, so we will move on, but we'll go back to you, Will, for this next story on <laughs> studying abroad. On January 10th, students interested in study abroad attended the Study Abroad Student Fair in Ida Noyes, where students learned about study abroad offerings. UChicago offers both faculty-led and direct enrollment study abroad opportunities around the world. Many of the faculty-led offerings fulfill the core requirements of civilization studies, whose focus on world culture and history lends itself to, in to international study in a single quarter. Yinan Wang, a third year who participated in the Jerusalem study abroad uh, in the Mideast Civ program last quarter, emphasized the difference between watching people's experiences from afar and seeing them up close. Start quote, studying abroad offered me a challenge to learn or to approach the modern conflict and the relevant conflict between Israel and Palestine from a more nuanced and local perspective, end quote. He also said, you learn the sides of people with different religious ideas and with different political affiliations who live in the region of Jerusalem and Palestine, how they view history and how they deal with the context 
and what their proposals are. It is much, much better and more helpful than, more, than the more polarized debate you'd have uh, outside of that region. Wing said it wasn't just the Palestine-Israel conflict that he witnessed firsthand while studying abroad. The study abroad program also overlapped the judicial overhaul that was happening in Israel at the time. Additionally, the university has centers in Paris, which hosts more than 200 undergraduates every year, houses many faculty-run programs, and is a hub for UChicago students abroad. UChicago also has centers in other parts of the world, like Hong Kong, Beijing, Delhi, Paris, London, and I just learned the other day, the Chicago House in Egypt. While most offerings run for a single quarter, there are also three-week September term options and some direct enrollment opportunities that run for an entire year. If you want to read more about this, you can head to the Maroons website and look for the article Students Explore Study Abroad Opportunities at FAIR by Gabriel Kramer. I, for one, have applied to a couple of study abroad programs for next year. Fingers crossed again to the Beijing Civ Abroad. Always wanted to see the city more and more. Um, so it's a very exciting time. But Carter, I know you have some experiences doing two study abroad programs. So I was wondering what your thoughts are. Yes, you know I staffed the uh, the study abroad fair last year, which was the the first one since COVID, um, and was pulling double duty at two different tables. One for their foreign language acquisition grant, which I did in summer of twenty twenty one. I spent uh, eight weeks, I think it was, in Italy studying Italian between Bologna and Turin, uh, and then I did immediately after that the Civ in Paris. So I took classics of social and political thought. Um, in right then fall 2021. And I love both of the experiences. I mean, it, it was fantastic. And then with the new center in Paris, there's going to be more classes, but also better facilities. And I think it'll be, you know, a great experience there. I actually, at my at, at work, I just met someone who also did a uh, study abroad in Paris when he went to UChicago in the 90s. Yeah. Um, did they have so a center back then? They did, he did direct enrollment. He oh, said great. He, all his classes were in French, and Ooh. that was a step further than I, I could do. Um, Italian helped a lot for learning French because everyone takes a language class when they study abroad. Your classes won't be in that language unless you choose, for example, Civil French or something. But wherever you're going, you will take a language class, so you'll be able to navigate the area a little bit better. Um, it, it's good both for cultural engagement and also, frankly, for safety. Um, so... I, yeah, I highly recommend studying abroad. It's, it was one of my favorite experiences. Um, and specifically, I will again recommend things like foreign language acquisition grant or the summer independent travel you know, study grants that will give you money, because Lord knows you pay enough, um, to go and spend time doing either research or language study abroad. Highly recommend applying for both of those. That's awesome. I have a friend who studied abroad um, last fall and apparently he liked it so much that he's just staying there for this quarter like he's um taking an LOA and he's just working there and and really enjoying it um but I guess that goes to show how some people really enjoy um their experiences abroad all right so uh we are nearing the end it's a very it's been a very long episode We'll just hear some final words from Carter about how he's doing, how he's been since graduation. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, if you did not tell, I'm an alumnus. Um, I graduated in June of 2023. Um, so I currently live in New York. I majored in business economics, minored in Italian, and am working in neither of those. I work for a fine art and luxury goods auction house in New York. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've been doing well. I, I, the work is very interesting, I will say, compared to typical finance jobs that come from business economics majors. So yeah, I, I think it's a great opportunity to see the sort of works of art that are museum quality, but not yet in museums. Many of them will go into the hands of the very wealthy and eventually museums for a substantial tax write-off. Um, but uh, yeah, it's we just had this big exhibition this past week with um, Americana, which is a collection of American art, but also American design. Um, and in this case, American fashion. We had a large auction of American yeah. fashion um, put on by the CFDA. And uh, during the exhibition opening, we did have a guest appearance by Anna Winter. <laughs> um, and also a variety of individuals with questionable taste um, that made for an interesting evening, for sure. Yeah, I always enjoy seeing your Instagram stories of all the different items you uh, auction off at these sales and all these facts about them. Like you auctioned off some dinosaur bones, I believe. And yeah, and we have a of... huge science and pop culture. I mean, relative to other auction houses, large science and pop culture division, because our head of department is like basically the person in the industry to auction off items related to scientific discovery, natural history, those sorts of things. All right, we're getting ready to sign off. Thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm Pravan. I'm Jake. I'm William. I'm Celeste. And I'm Carter. We'll see you next week.